Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor of the Church Times. I'm joined today by the Reverend Dr. Miranda Threffel holmes to talk about her new book, How to Eat Bread, 21 Nourishing Ways to Read the Bible. It's published by Hodder and is available from the Church Times Bookshop for the special price of ten ninety nine. I mean, first of all, can I just ask what was your reason for for writing this book? Did did you did you sense a need for this kind of book in the church? Yeah, absolutely. I found that over the years, um, I've continually had people coming up to me, kind of quietly asking how how they should read the Bible. Yeah, often, often sometimes new Christians, but sometimes people who've been in the church many many years, and are often really embarrassed. About, um, about not knowing quite where to go with it. Often it's people who've had um, quite a simplistic view that you should read the Bible literally. Uh, and when they start ex- encountering um, other approaches, they, they get quite excited, but also quite confused. So for years, I've had people coming up and saying, you know, what can you recommend for me to read? And really there hasn't been anything that I was able to give them. Um, there's quite a lot of books at a fairly academic level, but but, really very little that bridges the gap between kind of Bible reading notes that help you look at, help you read through the Bible and look at particular bits and kind of academic books on what's known in, in universities as theological hermeneutics, kind of the, the, the science of interpretation. So I'm trying to bridge that gap with this book and have something that you can give to anyone, whether they're a new Christian or an experienced Christian, that helps them think about the Bible. And the title of the book, um... I think you're right that there are several different reference points for it. Could could you say a little bit about the inspiration for the for the title? Yeah, how to eat bread. I know. <laughs> I hope it's not too wacky. Um, maybe it's because I was writing it partly in lockdown and bread was such a big theme. <laughs> My husband makes our own bread and we were finding it impossible to buy flour and yeast. So, but there's something, something really fundamental about bread, isn't there? Obviously, in in the Christian tradition, there's um, there's the idea of of bread as nourishment and Henri Nguyen talks about bread for the journey in terms of, of prayer and bible reading and it seems to me as I was reading through particularly in the um, in the historic section of the book that looks at the ways that medieval writers read the bible there's a real theme of eating and being nourished by it and sucking all the goodness out of it getting all the nectar from the flower and breastfeeding from the bible and just this idea of it being fundamental food seemed really, really important. You're, you're pushing back in, in your book against some popular ideas of the Bible as a kind of instruction manual for life, which I think a lot, a lot of people have heard. I mean, what, what are your misgivings about that approach and, and how would you view the Bible? Yeah, I, I remember as a student being told it was the maker's instruction manual. It's a lovely soundbite, isn't it? But it doesn't, it doesn't really stand up to, um, to, to very much... Um, when you actually start reading the Bible, you know, you start very earnestly at page, you know, chapter one, page one, and start reading. And then you start going, hang on a minute, there's just genocide, there's there's kind of all these weird stories, there's poetry. In what sense is this an instruction manual? You know, you can't simply read directly off the page. And that, my worry is that a lot of people, if they think it should be as simple as reading an instruction manual, then think that it's their fault that they can't make head or tail of certain sections or that some bits interrupt and so I think a lot of people end up losing confidence in their own ability to read the Bible because they they've been told it's, it's simple and, and of course it's not simple 
Or on the other hand, they get told it's so complicated that there's no point bothering and we kind of pat people on the head and say, you know, let, let the clergy or let those who are trained read this and disempower people. So giving people, I really want to give people the, the toolkit, it's a completely different metaphor for eating bread, but you know, give people a toolkit that says, you know, this is something that you can do. Some bits of it are complicated, um, but actually let's explain the jargon of the complicated bits so that they're not totally putting you off and, and we're not holding it to, you know, to the people who've got degrees in it. When you find something difficult when you read the Bible, I want people to be open to the possibility that it might be meant to be difficult. I think a lot of the Bible um, is designed to be material for contemplation. There's a bit like, um, like some of our doctrines, things like the doctrine of the Trinity. It's complicated deliberately almost because it's meant to be something that you spend days, years, your life contemplating as a mystery. And I think a lot of the bits of the Bible are like that. I think that's one of the ways that I'd love people to start approaching the really difficult bits of the Bible, the bits that we see as, as toxic, you know, those stories of, of genocide or rape or hatred. How do we deal with those? Well, actually, partly by going, whoa, that's really difficult. Maybe I'm meant to find it difficult. Maybe it's meant to make me feel angry or that that's unjust uh, and that I should be contemplating that. You, you talk about the, um, in some circles, the vicar knows best mentality, where I suppose people leave it up to the, the, the vicar or or curate or, or, or lay minister to prepare a sermon and kind of tell them what the Bible means. But you you take quite a different approach at your church in, in Liverpool, don't you? Yeah, we do. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, you know, that there's a really long history of, of that. You know, back in the Middle Ages, people were discouraged from reading the Bible. You know, it wasn't allowed to be in vernacular languages because the church wanted to keep control of interpretation. And although that's, you know, that's, you know, part of the, the heritage of the Church of England is, is resisting that um, and having the Bible in English. Actually, the, I think that there's been a, there's a really long, long tail, if you like, of that approach that says that this is a text that needs very careful handling and so it needs to be left to the experts. What we do in, um, in, in St Bride in Liverpool um, is very much kind of a round table, open mic discussion of the Bible where we try and take seriously this idea that actually everybody is equally entitled to read the Bible and that the insights of everybody, um, and perhaps most importantly, the insights of people who are new to faith um, or who've been on the margins or excluded for some reason, um, are as important for everyone else to learn from as the biggest expert. That's something that's been really important in the Open Table congregation is saying, actually, you know, read the Bible from your own, your own perspective and speak. And if a child wants to stand up and say what it means to them, that's great. I, I mean, the funny thing is, often people think that's really radical, but of course, it's it's actually deep in our history, isn't it? St. Benedict said that the youngest member of the monastery should be taken most seriously when they speak. Can I ask a little bit about um, the way you hope to draw people's attention to how our ancestors have understood and used the Bible? And I'm, I know you're, you're an expert in, in medieval history. Um, I mean, have you found people are receptive to that in your church? And are they often not really aware of the you know, church history and the, and the history of interpretation and the way the Bible is being used? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's really interesting because I think a lot of people think that everybody before maybe 1900 took the Bible literally. Um, and they, they divided on whether they think that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> but they assume that that's what, what happened in the past. And of course, it's simply not true. 
And one of the one of the reasons I was excited about writing this book was because how we read the Bible as Christians has become such a divisive thing, hasn't it? It's behind so many of our of our debates. How we read it is really controversial and increasingly a matter of tribal identity. So you know, taking it literally is what one camp does, and you know, then they accuse people who don't take it totally literally of not believing it at all. So what I want to say is, look, actually. Our history is much more complex than that. Effectively, that polarisation is a post-Enlightenment debate. Um, but actually, our history is of people taking the Bible very, very seriously, but in a whole lot of different ways, in a whole lot of different levels. And there's, there's a wonderful quote that I, that I, that I have in there from you know, the fourth century saying, you know, nobody would be so stupid as to imagine that God actually made the, the world in, in seven days. You know, which, which, of course, most people assume everyone in the past thought. And that's simply not true. And I think that's so eye opening. When we were um, trialing some of this material in a, in a parish group on Zoom over lockdown, that was one of the things that, that everybody just sort of sat back and went, whoa, when they heard. I think it just it's so liberating to realise that this isn't us modern people being all liberal and progressive against the whole tide of tradition. This is actually taking our tradition seriously and learning from it. Makes, makes one rethink what it means to be a sort of, quote, Bible-believing Christian. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Augustine, Aquinas, all those kind of big names from the past didn't think that you simply read the Bible literally. Now, that, that's not to say they didn't believe the Bible. They all said that the literal meaning of the Bible is, you know, is the most obvious one and the one that you, you begin with. But that those bits of the Bible that aren't immediately, I mean, the word they use is edifying. Those bits that you read and you go, what? You know, that, that doesn't seem to square up with what we think of a, of a God of love and so on. It, those bits, which everyone admits are there, they need to be read in a different way because everything in the Bible should be helping us to develop, should be nourishing our faith in, in the, the word I use in the title, should be nourishing our faith, should be helping us to develop in love of God and love of our neighbour. So if on the surface it doesn't, then there must be a deeper layer of meaning to look for. Could you just talk a bit more about those layers of meaning that you, you outline in the book? Well, the, the medi- yeah, the medieval approach was to look for four layers of meaning. So that the, I mean, they've, they've got slightly odd names, but the literal, the allegorical, the, uh, oh gosh, I always get confused, the, 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 the moral and the, and the sort of end times topological. And when we say allegorical nowadays, we tend to put all those last three together. But effectively what they said was um, the literal meaning, which is the kind of plain meaning of the text, um, is the first one to start with. But what they meant by literal wasn't what we mean by literal. Um, what they meant by literal was really what we might mean by a kind of proper um, study of the text. So the, the language used, the history, the context, all that kind of thing. Uh, was part of what they meant by the literal meaning, not that you simply read off words and, and took them literally. Um, so there's the kind of study of what the actual words are, is what they mean by that, the, the study of the letters of, of themselves. And if that tends to love of God and love of neighbour, fine. You don't necessarily need to look for other, other layers. But where it doesn't, so where it's a you know, a story of genocide, a story of violence, a story like, like you know, David raping Bathsheba, a story that on the face of it is not a very edifying story. Then they say, look for other levels of meaning. So it's not that any passage has all four. It's that these are four places that you might go and look. And that's where you get into this idea of allegory um, and do different things stand for others. Now, some of that 
did get pretty fanciful. I mean, you read some of these things and you think that's just bonkers. Um, some of the numerology and so on just seems very, very strange to us now. But the basic idea was that um, the allegorical meaning was looking for church doctrine. So if the literal meaning of the passage wasn't obvious, or even if it was, there might be other layers. Does it say something about church doctrine? So, for example, they very often see water in any story as a symbol of baptism. So, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, you, you think about baptism and so on. And then the moral, the moral, uh, the, the wording is, is quite, quite unhelpful because that doesn't mean, you know, ethics, what we should do. It's kind of the inner life. What does this mean for us? So if you were going to do an allegory of the story with each of those elements, instead of standing for bits of church doctrine, standing for things within yourself, what would it mean? Um, and I, I find this, it's a really interesting approach, but it takes a bit of getting your head around. But so for example, the, the example I give in the book is of the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and of course you can read that, it's very meaningful on a literal level, obviously one of the best love stories in the Bible. And you can read it on an allegorical level for church doctrine as being about opening up and, and, and so on. On the, the moral inner life reading, it says, well, okay, what if the Good Samaritan and the, the priest walking by the other side and the uh, robbers uh, are all elements of yourself, all kind of elements of your own personality? So you might ask yourself questions like, what in your life what or what parts of your personality threaten to rob you of all you hold dear? Are there traumas in your life which, when you think about them, leave you helpless at the side of the road? If you're thinking about the, um, the, the, the people who walk by on the other side, you might think, what are the bits of you, the kind of good, holy bits of you, that you would expect to help in those situations, but that actually don't? So you might think that you know your 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 good church-going persona will be the most helpful thing <clears throat> when you're struggling, but it isn't necessarily. And then think about the Good Samaritan. I think, well, which part of you? You know, the Good Samaritan stands in the story, doesn't it, for um, for the least likely person to help, the person that's demonised, the the other that obviously nothing good's going to come from there, and that's the place where help comes from. Is there a part of your personality? or a part of your life, which would be the least place, the least likely place you would expect help to come from, the bit of you that you really despise, the bit of you that you hide from other people. And how does it feel to imagine that part being the bit that helps you when you're struggling? And obviously, you know, I, I, can't, I can't give all the answers, but as questions for reflection, they can be incredibly profound. And you can think about the places, too, in this kind of allegorical way. You know, if Jerusalem stands for the city of God uh, and you're going away from it. What is there that's such an important journey that would take you away from that? Yeah. So it's really interesting. And then the, the other, the fourth layer was thinking about the future. And um, I don't I think it's quite hard for that one to feel relevant to people nowadays, to be honest. We're running an extract this week from your book um, where you write about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And you say this shows how scripture can be used for good or ill and um, can show us how to react when scripture is misused. Um, could you just um, re reflect on, on that passage a little bit in light of what, what you've been saying? Yeah, I mean, one, one of the sections that I'm 
most excited about in the book is, is the first section, which is about the way in which the Bible uses the Bible. Because I think particularly for people who are a bit suspicious about the idea of reading um, the Bible in different ways. <laughs> the Bible says it, so we should believe it. Actually, it's, it's, it's quite a reassuring place to start to say, well, actually, look, the Bible itself reads other bits of the Bible in different ways. So at the very least, um, these are kind of Bible legitimized ways of reading. And I find that passage, Jesus' temptations, just endlessly fascinating. I'm sure I could have written a whole book on it. There's two chapters based on it in the, in the book. Uh, one on the way in which you can follow back the quotations. So, you know, Jesus and the devil are, are throwing these quotations at each other. And part of the point of that, um, of that passage, one of the ways of reading it that makes it much richer is to go back and look up the actual quotations they use and look at the wider story around those and all that kind of hinterland of what they're saying. Because you realise that there's a lot more to what's being said than the simple short quotes that they're, they're throwing at each other. And then in, in the extract that you're running, we talk about this idea of the devil quoting scripture. Um, and I think the, the, the main point for me is that we often hear the line of oh, the devil lies, you know, devil lies, the devil twists scripture for his own purposes. And that's not what happens in, in, in that dialogue. I, I just find it fascinating. What you've got in that dialogue is you've got absolutely accurate Bible quotes in this character of the devil. And I, I, you know, I don't want to be distracted by how we think about the devil, whether that's kind of an internal voice or an external thing. I don't think it matters for the, for the purposes of this. But you've got absolutely accurate quotations. They're not taken out of context. And so it's a little masterclass, I think, in how you deal with that, how you deal with challenge from the Bible, which is accurate, um, and yet seems to conflict with other fundamental things that you've read in the Bible. Uh, and that's what's going on in that in that passage, isn't it? You know, Jesus is having to decide where is the fundamental ground that he stands on. Where's his kind of bedrock in Scripture um, that enables him to to deal with challenge, which is biblically based. And when we think about the um, the ways in which the Bible is so controversial, and the way we use the Bible is so controversial now, all our huge, you know really fundamental debates that we're having in the church at the moment so often come down to are you using the bible properly or not and accusations that the other isn't reading the bible properly um, it just seems to me that that dialogue is incredibly helpful in saying this is always a debate that's been going on it's a debate that's modeled for us there in the scriptures at the beginning of Jesus' ministry it's one of the things he has to deal with and get right before he can move on and <laughs> I love how sensible it is. You know, it's not kind of highfalutin and theological. It's like kind of your mum's advice. You know, if, if someone tells you to go and jump off a high place, would you know, would you do it? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it's kind of use your common sense um, and, and have somewhere fundamental to stand. Know, know the tradition well enough. And this is one of the reasons I think reading the Bible well is so important. Know the tradition well enough that you can balance a particular quotation or challenge against the weight of the place where you stand. Just thinking about how, how we read the Bible and, and people say some people aren't reading it right. So you're, you're very keen in the book to make people aware of the, the filters we use or the, the, the lenses through which we read the Bible and that there's no 
kind of objective dispassionate observer um could you say a little bit about some of the different readings that you offer yeah i think that's absolutely right i mean basically that's the fundamental thing isn't it there is no no filter reading um i, I it's such a strange idea for us in the kind of Western academic tradition, because we've so often, we've, we've been brought up with this idea of an impartial observer. That's how, I mean, that's certainly how I was taught science at school, that you, you write your experiments, a test tube was heated, you know, <laughs> um, you, you take yourself out of it. And I, it seems to me that that's what is behind, um, you know, things like the Black Lives Matter movement, things like feminist understandings, things like queer readings. People may or may not agree or disagree with or like those particular filters, but what they all do is they raise our consciousness of the fact that there isn't such a thing as a no filter reading. We all read the Bible from our own cultural context, whatever that might be. Uh, and what we have tended to be trained to think of as the objective natural reading of the text has tended to be a fairly privileged white European male worldview. And it can be really hard to, to take that out. And you can see when people do kind of take that filter out and put a different one in, um, the, the visceral responses, the, 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 the depth of, um, of violence against that that can be, that can be um, sparked in people because you know, to, to challenge somebody's fundamental reading of what the Bible says is, is very, very threatening. It feels very threatening. But of course, the threat is always there. It's just who is the threat there. And I think we've seen that um, particularly over this, over this last year with the Black Lives Matter movement saying, you know, actually, when people talk about a white reading, we as white people often feel very, very threatened by that, um, which I think should open our eyes to how, to how others have felt and to what other filters are we not aware of. Uh, so yeah, so I talk in the in the um, in the third section, which I call molecular gastronomy. <laughs> Bit of a nod to that kind of MasterChef idea of uh, foams and gels and sous vide machines. You know, most of us aren't going to necessarily do these things for ourselves at home, but it's it's fun to to watch them on television, and it's quite important um, when it comes to reading the Bible to know what they are and to know they exist, and just to be aware of them. So I talk about things like. Um, a hermeneutic of suspicion, which is this fundamental idea of saying, who, who, whose interests was it that this interpretation became, um, became normalized? Uh, so, I mean, one of the examples I love is that um, with, the, with all the parables of Jesus, you know, there's a landowner, there's a rich person, we always assume that that's God. You know, the whole tradition has, has generally assumed that the the rich, powerful man in those stories stands for God, and that therefore either we're the, 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 the baddie or the steward or something else. And if you turn that on its head and go, what if, what if, either what if God is one of the other characters in this story, um, or whose interest was it to ask, to, to assume that God was identified with that rich male landowner? It can be very, very interesting, very, very challenging. And um, so hermeneutical suspicion is a, a, a liberation theology. And then I specifically talk in the book about um, feminist theology, because in a way, all these different filters are, are operating in a similar way. And I didn't feel I could authentically speak through, through a, a black lens or a queer lens. So I, I've, I've chosen to speak about the feminist lens as an example of those. 
and then, then I go on to talk about some of the other kind of modern ideas about, about reading the Bible, like um, what about an ecological reading? That, this is a, a, a very new idea that's just emerging where you take the insights of ecology and, and how ecosystems work together and, and look at all those um, parts of the Bible that, that use ecological imagery through that lens. So I thought the reading of the parable of the sower was very interesting in light of ecology, how it's often been read as kind of evangelism and the seed falling on fertile ground or not, or rocky ground, but actually your, your reading ecologically is quite different. Yeah, and it, you know, and, and goes back to the idea we were talking about earlier about having different layers of meaning. It's not to say it doesn't, it's not about evangelism, but it might also um, have other layers of meaning. Um, and even, even, even if we th see it as about evangelism still, um, but then take an ecological point of view. Is the seed that falls on the rocky ground and is eaten by the birds um, or that springs up but then withers, is that wasted? I mean, in an ecological point of view, it's all about the, the cycle of nutrients and nothing's wasted. So the birds have been fed. Is that a bad thing? <laughs> is, the is the only good thing about grain that the farmer gets a harvest? You know, that's a very capitalist um, and a very landowner centric view of, you know, is the only good thing about planting grain that you get a harvest or is the fact that birds also get fed that um, some of it will spring up and then go down and create a compost layer which will support small insects and things. Actually, those other bits of seed that from the farmer's point of view are inverted commas wasted are still contributing to the ecology. And so even if we're still reading it from an evangelistic point of view, it encourages us to have a more holistic view of what's happening with our evangelism. Can I just ask finally about the um, hands-on hermeneutic, I think it is, and, and some, I don't know if this relates to some of the exercises that you suggest people do in the book, which are not simply sitting in an armchair reading the Bible on your own. Yeah, absolutely, because not everybody is someone who, I mean, personally, I love reading books, but not everyone does, you know, as my podcast have become so popular, isn't it? Um, I, I've, I've loved, um, over, over my ministry finding out more about things like godly play and messy church and one of the things I find really frustrating is that things like that have become pigeonholed as being just for children um, so I, I was talking to somebody the other day about a potential um, grant uh, almost you know, mission grant and was told no you can't use messy church because that's just a kids thing we're interested in young people and adults I was like but have you ever tried doing lego with adults it's absolutely fantastic you know, so, I mean, if someone wants to try this at home, you know, in, in the book, I suggest all sorts of ways you can do it as a, as a group and in a church. And it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant way to engage a completely different bit of people's brains. Uh, but if you want to try this at home, um, if, if you're listening to this, just try reading a Bible story and then getting some, some Lego out. If you've got some Lego TM, I suppose I should say, um, other, other brick materials are available. Um, but, you know, get out some, some building blocks or, or a, or a pen and paper, um, and just try modeling the story or drawing it. Um, but I think modeling it is great because you have to make all sorts of decisions about what you're going to choose, which characters you're going to choose, what, what can you do? And one of the things I love is doing this in the sermon slot in church, is give, putting a box of Lego on loads of tables and getting people to, to do it. Adults often are a bit kind of, why are you asking me to do something childish? But then they get over themselves quite quickly. And everyone makes a model and then you go around and everyone shares what they've made and why. And the different aspects that people pick out of the story are just mind blowing. 
it's one of the things that we started doing. Um, you might remember a few years ago, I wrote a book called The Teenage Prayer Experiments. And I started doing this with teenagers um, as a way of reading the Bible. Um, and I remember the first time I did it with my kids, my middle son, who was then, I think, seven or eight, uh, was modeling the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and he spent ages with these tiny little pieces. And when I went over, he'd focused on the, um, the money. Actually, for a seven or eight-year-old, money is really, you know, you don't have very much of it. You, know, you get given it at Christmas. It's a really special thing. And the idea, he, he modeled this beautiful little scene of one person handing over some little Lego gold coins to another. And it was like, this is the, the person giving enough money to the innkeeper to look after this person for as long as he needs. I was like, I've never known someone pick that aspect of the story out, but when they were modeling it and you had to choose which bits are modeled, that was what he chose to do. So it, it, it just can bring a whole load of insights and it's great to do on your own, but it's even better to do in a group. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.